Hello everyone, I'm Alex Zanardi. I guess I should introduce myself. It's a pleasure for me to be with you today and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hello everyone. Yes, it's your favorite time of the week. It's Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. As ever, it's great to have you with us and my goodness, do we have a show for you this week because my guest is the one and only Alex Zanardi. Now, some of you may not be too familiar with him. After all, his career in Formula One wasn't what I and many others thought it might be. But I can honestly say that out of all the impressive people I've met in Formula One over the years, few come close to Alex. He raced for Jordan, Lotus, and after an electrifying spell dominating IndyCars, for Williams in Formula One. But it's what happened after that that has made someone who was already supremely popular in the racing world an inspirational figure worldwide. On September the 15th, 2001, in a champ car race at Germany's high-speed Lausitzring, Zanardi suffered a horrific accident. He survived, just, but only after both legs were amputated, one above the knee and one at the hip. But remarkably, Zanardi would battle back. Battle back to race again at the top level in touring cars, but perhaps even more remarkably, battle to the top of the Olympic rostrum, having taken up and then completely dominated hand cycling. His zest for life is an inspiration to us all. But then again, Alex has only ever dealt in positivity, even when he was a young driver struggling to climb up the motor racing ladder with no money. He's one of life's radiators. He radiates positivity onto everyone he meets. He's also a bloody good storyteller, which is why this week's podcast is the longest we've ever produced. And we make no apology for that. Every anecdote paints a picture of both Alex the man and Alex the racing driver. And I think everyone listening will take something away from what he has to say. We delve deep into Alex's Formula One career. How did he get his big break? And did he make the most of every opportunity? How good was he? And what about that crash at Spa in 1993? We cover it all. And of course, we talk about the crash that changed his life in so many ways, yet he remains so very philosophical about. We spoke a little while ago via Zoom during the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. He was at home in Padua in Italy, just down the road from last week's guest, Riccardo Petrezzi, and I was in the UK. So without further ado, here's Alex Zanardi. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And very lucky, luckily, allow me to say uh, there's a strong connection between, you know, what happened before and after in the sense that I was able to carry on into this new life of mine against all odds, I have to say, because of what happened. Uh, but I don't feel like I'm living a second life. It's just the the, the same one, uh, which certainly jumped on a different level, where I've been able to embrace and to encounter things that uh, I would have never met if what happened didn't. And this is not necessarily a bad thing, actually. I'm very comfortable in this new life of mine, where I've been able to do a lot of new things, 99% of which are probably directly to my new condition. So after many years, I've been able to turn what happened into an opportunity. Alex is and always has been a racer, pure and simple. His Formula One career is only part of his incredible story, 
which includes world titles in cars and more recently, gold medals at the Paralympics. However, back at the very start, he only had humble ambitions. I never thought I could become the best driver in in the world. For sure, I didn't think I was when I started. Actually, I felt so far away from being the best driver in the world at the very beginning that my even in my dreams, I was not dreaming of winning a go-kart race. I was dreaming of finishing second. First was too much to me. So I was dreaming of, you know, climbing on, on the podium and, uh, you know, just the first one behind the winner. That was enough at the very beginning. But then, of course... I was able to change also my expectations along the way. And uh, yeah, and I always felt, you know, I should uh, run towards my, uh, let's say, testing um, exams in order to compare myself, not to fear any sort of comparison, in order to really find out whether I was worth an opportunity, again, a new one, in just accomplishing a partial result during my journey and you know I always passed my exam to a certain degree proving myself that I was good enough that I could be you know with the right amount of preparation doing quite well my own work I could be good enough to win no matter the level of the competition I was good enough with the right equipment to get the job done and uh, yeah I was able to prove that at many levels unfortunately it didn't happen in Formula One. At what point in your career did you realise that you could actually do this and you could be successful and, and win races and, and you deserved a proper shot at Formula One? Uh, well, life is a funny thing. Actually, our approach to life is a funny thing. The approach we have, uh, for sure, uh, changes its shape. We gain experience and this allows us to be more evoluted along the way. And unfortunately, you know, we tend to reach our best consciousness of our strength, of our limits as well, later in our life, where we are not as well equipped as we were at the very beginning, as far as strength, as resistance, as gift. You know, where the two lines crosses is normally the point where if you have the best opportunity of your life, you have a very strong chance to become a champion, to become someone let's say. So evidently, I was sufficiently equipped uh, as far as skills from the very beginning because I won uh, races in uh, in my early days in go-karts and then in Formula 3 and then Formula 3000. But I was far from being equipped from a mental point of view as much as I am today or as much as I were maybe also when I had my Best opportunity of my life in IndyCars with Chip Ganassi in between 96 and 98. I probably thought more of myself when I was, let's say, not a kid, but a boy, than I think today, to cut a long story short. I wanted to believe that I was good enough, but I wasn't yet, at least. And in any case, that helped me also to be sufficiently greedy in going for it, in keep pushing for the opportunity, for the chance. And I made a lot of mistakes, as everybody does, you know, we human beings. Uh, But evidently, you know, I made some mistakes, but I made also some good things, which granted me the opportunity to carry on through the course of my racing career and to make it successful. 
you know, to be able to turn my passion into a profession. When did the two lines cross, to use your analogy, when, you know, the experience and, and the strength of youth, when did they cross? When were you at your peak? Um, well, I said it, you know, I, in, uh, when, I, when I joined Ganassi in 96, I had done a sufficient number of mistakes uh, to say to that point, okay, I learned the, the lesson, I know what I have to do. And uh, that didn't make me immune to other mistakes, but for sure, I mean, uh, I, I started to, you know, to drive with more consciousness, with more wiseness, and I start to understand better the, the principle that uh, is very dear to the Americans when they say to finish first, first you have to finish. And, uh, <laughs> and I started to finish races, although on top I had a very good car underneath me. So, you know, when you are in front of the entire pack, uh, it's very easy then to become intelligent. When you see your opponents becoming smaller and smaller and smaller in your rear mirrors, you know, you say, okay, that's enough. At that point, it's quite easy to say that's enough. It's harder when you are fighting for, uh, uh, you know, a midfield position with a car that is not any better than that. Uh, and you're young and you believe that you want to win the race. You don't want to finish uh, 13 instead of 14, which is potentially the best you can do that day, you know. And that were the mistake I'd done at the very beginning of my career, including the very beginning of my Formula One career when I was driving for Lotus. And yeah, the car was a good one, but was not as good as the top teams' uh, machines. And, uh, you know, I remember, for instance, my very first race in uh, 93 with Lotus, fighting with Damon Hill, who was driving the great guy, actually. Hi, Damon. Sorry for what I'm about to say, <laughs> because that day I <laughs> ran him off the road. Uh, <laughs> so Damon was in the Williams, wasn't he? Exactly, exactly. And, uh, yeah, you know, I was just uh, not very, let's say, honest with myself, not capable of seeking where the limit was in reality. The limit was just drawn by my wish, not by the technicality of what I was doing and of what I was involved with when I was driving my car. Alex made his Formula One debut with Jordan at the end of 1991, but he almost got his chance even earlier. At the Italian Grand Prix, there was a tussle over the sport's new star, Michael Schumacher. Michael had driven for Jordan at the previous race in Belgium, but Flavio Briatore wanted him in a Benetton at Monza. Both teams needed a backup plan in case they couldn't get Schumacher, and amazingly, a young Alex Zanardi, who'd never driven in Formula One, found himself caught in the middle. 91, I'm driving Formula 3000, I'm doing really well, driving for a team called the Barone Rampant. Giuseppe Cipriani was the team owner, good friend, and a very good friend with uh, Briatore. Briatore was also inducing him, or tempting him, to create a Benetton B team, second team, like Red Bull today is doing with Toro Rosso. Giuseppe had all the finance to do this because uh, our main sponsor was the group Montedison Group and they had several, the chemical uh, company. So those days, I mean, they could finance whatever they wanted to, no problems. It was possible, you know, for Giuseppe the following year to start his own team, 
let's say, in the shadow of the Benetton one. While all this is kind of shaping in a certain way, Briatore hires Michael Schumacher after Spa, if you remember. So the next race is Monza. Schumacher is supposed to drive for Benetton, but uh, Eddie Jordan, of course, is as uh, angry as a snake that has been run over by a truck. So he's fighting as hard as he can legally to take Schumacher back. So as they approach the Monza Grand Prix, I got this phone call from Juan Villa del Pra, and he explains me the situation. And he says, you know, we have this legal problem right now, a litigation with Daddy Jordan, and there is a slight remote possibility that we will not be able to run Michael uh, in Monza. But Moreno is out of the team, period. So we will not have Moreno in the car. In case Michael may not be allowed to drive our car, would you be interested? And I said, are you asking me? My own Grand Prix in Monza? Wow! So they asked me to go to Monza on the Wednesday before the race uh, to do secretly uh, seat feeding everything on closed door because nobody was supposed to know anything. So true enough, I go to Monza. Boy, I sit into the Benetton, the seat fitting, all the mechanics working for me. Alex, do you want a coffee? Oh, yeah, thank you. Oh, you know, you, can you imagine a young kid like me who was basically unemployed the previous year, completely broke, and, uh, you know, you got the opportunity to drive in Formula 3000 at the very last second. Now he's going very well in the championship, and all of a sudden, now he's in the sight of a huge team like Benetton. So, I mean, it, I was really in heaven. So I do the sit fit and I do everything. I had a great day with the team. And then uh, they say, okay, Alex, please now go back to the hotel and wait for the phone call because uh, we're going to know tonight whether we can run Michael or not. While I'm walking away, of course, very anonymously in the paddock, I bump into some people and they start to hug me, congratulations, congratulations. I said, for what? Are you driving for Jordan this weekend? And I said, well, I don't know. I didn't dare saying much more because I said, what they are talking about? What's, what's the matter with Jordan? I'm supposed to drive the Benetton, but I couldn't talk about it. And then I bump into Maurizio Arrivabene, who at the time was only the general manager for Marlboro representing the company in Formula One. And he also asked me and he said, I'm so happy for you, damn, you're going to do really well in that Jordan, you're going to make that Jordan fly. And I said, Maurice, okay, you are a friend, so I really need to clarify this. Where did you learn this from? I learned it from, uh, from Jordan. They want to run you because they cannot run Schumacher. He said, Maurizio, can I say, honestly, I know nothing about this. Oh, shit. Oh, okay. Okay, let's go and talk to Eddie Jordan. So I go to talk to Eddie Jordan, who was caught, was still furious for what was happening. So he didn't want to spend any time in considering another option because in his mind, he was still set to get Michael back. So he was still working with his lawyers, you know, to try to get Michael back. And he just basically gave me two minutes of the time to literally say, okay, Alex, we want to run Michael, but if we don't run Michael, we're going to have you in the car tomorrow. So go back to the hotel and wait for my phone call. 
Okay, now I have to go back to the hotel. <laughs> you can make it up. A phone call either from Briatore or from Eddie Jonah. What is this? A dream? Anyway, the only thing I could do was to go back to the hotel. I go back to the hotel, and no phone call comes. So nine o'clock, I had in-room service with Daniela because I had to wait. I mean, I didn't have a cell phone, you know, so I had to be next to the phone in my hotel room, and no calls come. And true enough, is 10 o'clock, 11 in the evening, the phone rings. So I pick up the phone and it's Giuseppe Cipriani on the phone. And he said, uh, ciao Alex, uh, you know, I'm here with uh, Flavio. He's got something to say, so I will put the phone over to you. So, okay. Ah, ciao Alex. Oh, Mr. Briatore, good evening. Okay, listen, it's too long to explain, but the, the thing is the following. Tomorrow, I'm going to sign you a multi-year deal with Benetton because you are too good of a driver. Uh, we have big project for you. We have this, we have this. You know, he started to give me this speech about, you know, how great I was as a driver and how important it was for the Benetton company to have me under contract for the future with them. But the bottom line, he said, uh, but uh, we cannot uh, let you drive tomorrow in the race because we have solved the problem with Michael. So Michael is going to be in the car. But uh, we want you in our future. So we want you. The important thing is that you don't answer the phone if Eddie Jordan calls. So he kind of unveil, you know, the real reason of his call just at the end. So I just said, well, Mr. Briatore, thank you very much for the offer. But in reality, please put yourself in my shoes. I mean, I have an opportunity if Eddie Jordan wants me to drive tomorrow. Of course, I would give you priority because I'm here for you. But if you don't need me, why shouldn't I be able to drive for Eddie? Then we can talk about future. We can talk about whatever you want. No, no. Listen, in life, people should know when it's time to make a choice. And now is your time. Do what you want. And he puts the phone down. My God. What did you think? What do you do next? I was talking to my fiance, Daniela. And true enough, the phone rings again. And it's again Briatore. And now he's already a little bit, sounds a little bit more nervous from the word go. And he says, okay, sorry, before uh, you got me a little angry, but uh, the problem is you have to understand that with whatever is happening, the situation is quite uh, difficult at the moment, but we really have very strong intentions for you. We really have a very strong interest of you. I personally have a very strong interest for you. So the bottom line is tomorrow we have a deal for you. The important thing is that if Eddie Jordan calls you, tell him you don't want to drive for him because you are a Benetton driver, period. And again, I say, oh, but I was kind of staggering, you know, because I mean, Alex Zanardi is no one in comparison to Briatore. And I said, bah, 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 bah. I tried to say something. I said, please understand. I mean, uh, you know, if he asked me, I already said, yes, Maurizio Arrivabene is involved. I don't give a shit about nobody. And he puts the phone down again. Then five minutes later, he calls again. And now he's really pissed with me. I mean, he's talking like bad words to me. And he's saying, he's basically telling me what I have to do. He said, you have to listen to me and you have to do this because you belong to Benetton. Period. That's it. Because you don't know who I am. I can do whatever I want in Formula One if I want to. Tomorrow, if I want, I can put 
that fucking Nelson Piquet, I can kick him in the ass and make room for you. And at that point, because he was talking me, you know, bad words like this, he really got me mad. And I said, Mr. Briatore, with all the due respect, you're not my dad. And uh, you don't talk to me this way. I'm stunned, I have to say, because until yesterday, I was just a young guy who had this dream of becoming a Formula One driver. And now I am a promising star who's contended from several top teams in Formula One actually are just being offered to kick out of the way a three-time world champion like Nelson Piquet to make room for me. So I'm stunned, but these are only fucking words. So if you have facts for me, I'm here to listen. Otherwise, I wish you good night. And that's enough for me because you and I never had beans together. This is a very typical Italian expression to say, don't get too close. You know, you and I never had beans together. So he puts the phone down and that was it, silence for the rest of the night. And what happened at that moment, they went for the last resource plan, which was drive to Villa d'Este Hotel, meet or wake up in the middle of the night, Eddie German, get him out of bed and threat him to take him into a lawsuit if he would dare sign with me anything because Giuseppe Cipriani had a multi-years deal with me, managing deal, and he was the only one deciding for my things and my destiny, which was a very believable, let's say, history. He drank that first because of, uh, you know, the, 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 you have to understand the general uh, situation, how dramatic it was at that point, and the level of stress which went through the roof for Eddie. And the fact that uh, Giuseppe, in fact, he was running me in Formula 3000. So it was very believable that in front of offering me the ride, he had asked me to sign a multi-year managing uh, deals, you know. So Eddie Jordan drank that. And, and that why that was so important for uh, Briatore? Because by then, Roberto Moreno filed a lawsuit against Benetton at the work court in Italy, which is the only thing incredibly efficient. And the judge has uh, had, at that point, intimate Briatore to allow him to work. So the only way they could finish the puzzle was to find a job for Moreno. So the real reason why they didn't want me to drive for Jordan was that if they would get me out of the way, then Roberto Moreno would drive for Jordan because Gary Anderson, who was the technical director in Jordan, was a very close friend of Roberto, having worked with him in Formula 3000 two years before. So he was very much uh, in favor of the idea of having Roberto driving that weekend in Monza. So if you understand that all, I mean, I was, let's say, the anomal element in that thing and removing me, everything would fit in place. You're 25. What an incredible story. I mean, did it change your attitude towards Formula One that whole weekend? No, you know, it's, I was expecting something else like this to happen. I mean, I, I was not shocked, first of all, because I could really understand all these persons who were really dealing and representing the interests of, you know, multi-million 
dollars, companies, you know. It's understandable at the end of the day, the driver is the guy who takes everybody's job around on Sunday afternoon. So if you fail to do that last step, of course, everything goes to hell. So I did entirely understand the responsibility, the preciousness of the role I was offered. And when that vanished, I really also understood the reasons why. I mean, it wasn't easy because, of course, nobody spent much of an effort to try to make me understand what was going on. I had to figure that out on my own. And that happened, of course, along the way. But the fact that I also, you know, embrace uh, in a very innocent way any request that came later from Eddie Jordan when he finally hired me in reality to finish the season. Because then the following day, I went to the paddock. Of course, no phone calls came. So I thought, you know, they didn't need me. And when I bumped into Eddie Jordan, he was furious with me. He just covered me with so many bad words. He didn't allow me to speak anything. I had to go to Arriva Bene, explain what I figured out. I said, Maurizio, I think the guy is bloody angry with me because he believes I have a deal with uh, Cipriani, but this is not true. Evidently, they told him this to make him hire Moreno for the weekend, but I have nothing to do with that. I told him that I was a free agent and I was honest. I am a free agent. I could have signed a deal. He was him who drank that story that is, that is just a lie. So Maurizio went to meet Eddie Jordan. He didn't want to listen. He didn't want to talk neither to Maurizio Arrivabene, but finally when he had to, because, I mean, Maurizio grabbed him from the shirt and he said, listen, guy, you give me one second and you give me your attention because I got to tell you this. And at that point, he just plunked. He was like white and he said, I am an idiot. That's the only thing he said because he understood he's been cheated. But then it was too late. Moreno had already done the first session of free practice. I'm still struggling to get my head around the fact that you haven't yet driven in a Grand Prix and yet you've already unwittingly alienated one of the top teams in Briatore and Benetton. Not bad, eh? Already some incredible insights into the mind of a powerful sportsman from Alex Zanardi there, and we have plenty more to come in just a moment. But before that, I wanted to tell you about Gymshark. Gymshark is a conditioning brand that is dedicated to creating functional training apparel using innovative performance technologies. Conditioning is everything we do today that prepares us for tomorrow. A huge part of training for any sports person and a message we could all do with a little reminder of sometimes. And if that speaks to you, then you should definitely check out their stuff. Gymshark was formed in 2012. I love these origin stories. In a garage in Birmingham in the UK, and it has emerged as a leading brand in gym apparel with a worldwide family of more than 15 million people in more than 150 countries, which is testament to their passion and vision. They're a community dedicated to unlocking potential, and they work with a huge range of athletes and creators such as Ross Edgley, Ryan Garcia, Katie Taylor, Matt Does Fitness, and Obi Vincent, and me. (laughs) Well, I haven't done anything as extreme as Ross Edgley, who swam around the UK, although I have cycled from John O'Groats to Land's End, and I do enjoy keeping fit. These days, my training is more gym-based, usually before leaving for the racetrack each morning of a Grand Prix weekend. 
I've got myself kitted out in some Gymshark gear and it's the real deal. It's breathable, it's flexible and their premium legacy joggers are really comfy. With those on and one of their Via t-shirts, I can hit the running machine flat out. Are you feeling inspired? If you are, go over and check out their website at gymshark.com forward slash beyond the grid. That's gymshark.com slash beyond the grid. Alex didn't have to wait long to make his Grand Prix debut. It came with Jordan at the Spanish Grand Prix alongside Andrea de Cesaris. And Alex continued the great form he'd been showing in Formula 3000. Actually, I out-qualified Andrea in my very first race in uh, Barcelona. And there were some sparks of uh, amazing performance, uh, which was not only related to the fact that the Jordan was a very good car. I was evidently turning the wheel in the right way. The thing was, I felt a very high expectation on what, I, I had to do to outshadow the memory of Michael Schumacher. It was produced in the blink of an eye because Michael was only in the car for one GP in Spa and then he was uh, taken from uh, Priatore to Benetton. That was actually the reason why Eddie Jordan went very energetically, let's say, on the market to search for a new Michael. And I was proud to be chosen uh, to take that role. But in my soul, I felt I had to perform every single lap, not every single Grand Prix, every single lap, uh, like someone who could immediately make everybody in the team forget Michael Schumacher and say, we got a guy who is better. And so the first race was a little unfortunate because Barcelona was a circuit with some technical characteristic which uh, didn't suit the best quality of the German 191. So the car was not very good. I was 22nd in the grid and Andrea was 23rd. I somehow brought the best out of the car, which went unnoticed because we were both at the end of the grid. Then I drove an honest race, finishing ninth on my very first Grand Prix. But then, uh, as you mentioned, we went to Suzuka and boy, I was fast there. Because uh, in qualifying, it's true that uh, I got blocked twice from Thierry Butzen. And had I had finished that lap, I would have probably qualified fifth. In the race, I was as fast as a rocket. Uh, because uh, we've modified the car, the setup quite dramatically. My engineer, Trevor Foster, he can witness that. And the car was just cuts me out, really flying. And in the morning warm-up, I was full fastest, but having been for like good 15 minutes of the entire warm-up, the fastest car out there, I was cruising like a rocket, lap after lap after lap after lap, passing Alain Prost into the Ferrari, and not even wasting a tenth of a second. And I remember, you know, after the warm-up uh, bumping into Alessandro Mariani, who was the chief uh, technical director of the Fuderia Italia team, if you remember. And uh, he said, uh, he asked me, how much uh, fumes of gas did you add in the tanks? <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? I had the full load of fuel. He said, come on, give me a break. You're telling me you were lapping so fast and you had the full load of fuel? I said, yes, I did. I swear to God. And he just went serious and he looked me in the eyes and said, you know what, boy? If what you're saying is true today, you're going to do a hell of a race. 
And uh, yeah, I was about to do a hell of a race. And unfortunately, after a few laps, I had a gearbox problem, which happened before already. But I got already up to fifth place at that point, passing Michael Schumacher. And I was told that Eddie Jordan, when I passed Michael in the Benetton, he gave the finger to Riatore. I'm sure that's true. (laughs) Yeah, I had to retire. And then in the last race in Adelaide, I was just too fast for the situation, you know. I had problems uh, in free practice, one of which was uh, uh, completely my fault. Senna was coming in my mirrors on a hot lap, and uh, I was so scared, so afraid to block him, that I kept looking in the mirrors to make sure that I was out of his way. And at one point, you know, he was approaching, and at one point, all of a sudden, he moved back in my mirrors, and I said, what's going on? When I put my side back on the road, the corner was there and it was really too late to turn. And I went straight into the barrier, crashed the car. So basically, I went into qualifying with only one lap, uh, not knowing the circuit. And uh, as soon as I went out uh, in qualifying, it was decided for me to go out with a set of race tires to learn the circuit and then use only one set of qualifying tires for qualify attempt. And uh, on the first lap, the gearbox rod got loose. It was made in two parts with a bolt that was holding the two parts together. So as a result of that, when I went to shift from uh, basically, what was it, fourth to fifth, instead of engaging fifth, I re-engaged third, but it was time to go to fifth. So you can imagine the scream of the engine, what happened. So I just drove back to the pits and uh, everybody was so furious with me because I'd crashed the car in the morning and they thought it was my fault. And so I I didn't dare say anything. I just stood quiet in the car. And then when finally Trevor Foster approached me to get a comment or whatever of any kind, I said, you know, there's this problem. So he realized, they all realized that it was my fault. But the four guys didn't want me to go out because the overhead was like 18,000 and like 14,500 was the limit. And when the driver would make a mistake and overhead the engine above that line, they would say, that's it. Stop the car, we park the car, and we have to replace the engine. But there was no time to replace the engine, so Trevor just turned around to me and he said, are you okay to go out and do the qualifier attempt now? I don't laps by then and of course uh, what do you think I would answer I said yes no problems give me the time I'll go for it so he had a little a big argument with the four guys but he fought for me and he sent me out and I was able to qualify 13 you know with only one lap uh, in that situation the following day in the morning I was fifth fastest and uh, the car was really rock on was fantastic and i was driving well and uh, unfortunately in the afternoon it rained so that was it 14 laps or something wasn't it and then in torrential rain if you remember i made a very strong comeback i got up to fifth at one point but then the race was red flag and the, the ranking was basically freeze to two laps before so i went back to seventh, which is wood medal as you know so many questions. The forensic detail that you can remember everything has surprised me. It's like we're talking about events that happened yesterday. It's extraordinary how well you do remember it. 
I mean, if you have eyes to see through the big chaos of elements of data in regards to my debut and my first three races in 1991, there were some sparks, as I said, of brilliant performance, which uh, should really indicate that I was good enough. Maybe not as good as Michael, who I was there to replace. I was certainly far over average. So, yeah, I was a promising young fast driver. And uh, in fact, Eddie Jordan and Ian Phillips, who were managing Jordan uh, Grand Prix those days, wanted to keep me badly. I had um, a deal with, with Eddie. I signed him a, a deal with an option on his favor, which was going to expire on October 23rd. He basically asked me to sign an option for October 31st. And the only thing I was able to negotiate in the agreement was to bump back the date of the option to the 23rd because it's the day of my birthday. So I said, Eddie, may you exercise your option. You're going to give me, you know, the best present of all on my birthday. You're going to keep me for the following year. And so he accepted that. And then when October 23rd, we got close to October 23rd, he was not yet in the situation where he could exercise his option. He didn't have the money to do that. It's a long story, but he was trying to get uh, the sponsorship from Braun, the electrical company. They sponsored Tyrrell the previous year, and Stefano Modena was driving the Tyrrell. Excellent driver, probably. I, I really mean this. I think it was a role model for me, and probably in my book, together, not behind, next to Senna, the best driver I've ever seen, as far as speed, as far as pure, sheer talent, incredibly gifted. Stefano Modena. Yes. When Eddie said he was trying to get Stefano, I said, well, he's the last guy I would want to have as a teammate. But this tells you that I think you should sign him because, I mean, the guy is just amazing. Together with Ayrton, is the best driver in the field, I think. So basically, he signed Stefano also because he was sure that he would, if he would sign Stefano, then he could get the sponsorship from Braun. In his mind, it was kind of automatic, but that didn't happen. Actually, never happened. Uh, so he was short of money because Stefano didn't bring any personal sponsorship. He actually wanted to get paid. And so I was left out in the cold, meanwhile. And he was searching for sponsors to sign the second driver, to sign me. And he didn't find any sponsorship. He had many deals open with uh, many people, with companies, with IMG, as a matter of fact. And finally, they started to negotiate the sponsorship of this petrol company, South Africa petrol company called Sassel. And um, IMG, I didn't knew that all uh, while it was happening, but they were pushing very hard to get Mauricio Gugelman in the second car next to Stefano Modena because it was the client and they wanted to have him driving for uh, them. It was not, let's say, a take it or give it, you know, situation, but they was pushing very, very strong. And while the negotiation went on, they realized how weak was Eddie Jordan's position because he had no option, no other option. He was short of money. He was desperate to get that sponsorship. So they basically push even harder to get Maurizio 
who was also a very good driver. And uh, yeah, to cut a long story short, they closed the deal in these terms. And I didn't knew nothing about this all while it was happening. I kept receiving phone calls from people. Hey, I heard that, you know, Eddie signed Mauricio. What do you know about it? I think you are out of the team. And that was well beyond the October 23rd, because by then I've signed him, let's say, extension of uh, the option, basically with no limits. Because, uh, I mean, for me at that point, Eddie was the one who brought me Formula One, so I would see him like my dad, you know. You trust your dad, don't you? So I was trusting him entirely. Was Eddie straight with you, do you think? He did what he had to do. At the time, I wasn't very happy because uh, to not jeopardize the deal and the negotiation, they kept everything very private to me also, which maybe it wasn't really needed because they could have trusted me and say, Alex, this is the situation. You better start to look around and search for an alternative, which I did. And this is another very romantic story that if you want, I can tell you. It was only let's say, 12 days before the first race in South Africa, where I pick up the phone, I call Ian Phillips, and I said, listen, I gave my heart to you, I gave everything I had, but uh, you owe me the truth. If it's really the case that you're negotiating or you're dealing with them, you should let me know, at least. If I know that I'm a free agent, there's not much that I can do, but at least there is something that I can try to do. And he very honestly said, admitted, he said, yeah, Alex, uh, if I was you, I should look for another deal now. So at that point, the world broke on me. And, uh, and was anything available 12 days before the first race? Yeah. The only uh, free ride was with Tyrrell, the second car with Tyrrell. And ironically, they had, uh, I didn't know that exactly, but they had a negotiation open with Andrea de Cesaris. So basically, this is what happened. I asked Ian Phillips to send me a fax because that was the only, there were no emails at the time, you know. And so he sent me this fax uh, where they basically released me from the option. So I was, again, a free agent. And at that point, I called uh, Ken Tyrrell. First of all, you have to understand that my English still, to this point, not very good. But at the time, I mean, I, I could not say much more than understeer, oversteer, good, bad. I mean, uh, it was difficult for me to talk. And you didn't have a manager? No. You were having to do it all yourself, no manager? So I called Ken Tyrrell. Can you imagine this uh, young guy from Castelmaggiore, Bologna, <laughs> calling Ken Tyrrell? I mean, Ken Tyrrell. So I called Ken Tyrrell. And incredibly, I asked, uh, told to him, was secretary, and uh, he answered the phone. And uh, he was very, very polite in saying, Alex, I thank you for uh, the phone call, but in reality, Tyrrell Racing, its team, which needs some uh, finance from the driver, we have a negotiation that is not closed yet, but uh, yeah, we're not the type of team that at this point of our history can make a choice like signing a young guy like you with no sponsorship. So that was basically it. So what I did, I mean, I fell back in my sadness for a good half an hour. And then it was Daniela, my wife, 
who said to me, you got to do something. At the time, she was my, just, my girlfriend. You have to do something. You have to do something now. So I went into the shower. I took a shower, shaved, went to Venice Airport, jumped on a plane, flew over to the United Kingdom, rent a rental car, drove to the factory, Tyrol, knocked the door, basically, and uh, introduced myself and asked to talk to Ken Tyrol. And true enough, five minutes later, he comes, and he was like very surprised to see me. And I said, Mr. Tyrol, I know that uh, you were not expecting my visit, but uh, I hope you understand that for a young guy like me to meet Ken Tyrol, it's already worth the trip. If you would give me five minutes of your time and offer me a cup of tea, that would be free thing, which would make this day a very winning one for me. So true enough, we had a cup of tea together. And in that time, I just said, I know these are only words, but at the moment is the only thing I can offer because uh, I can only talk. I can't drive your car and prove you how good I am, but I know I'm good. I know that if you allow me to drive your car, you're not going to regret this because I'm going to make that car go so fast that you're going to be, again, as excited as you were when you started your career as a team manager, as a team owner. And boy, I'm going to drive the hell out of that car. And uh, I know these are only words, but I thought that if I would come here and tell you in person, maybe that could light something in you and would make a difference. If not, don't worry. This for me is a very much a winning day because I shook your hand, I had a tea with you, and uh, I had five minutes of your time. For me, this is already enough. So true enough, he was shocked. So he said, uh, would you wait for me here? Uh, And then he turned around to his secretary and he said, do you want any more tea or whatever? And then he just disappeared. And I drank maybe five liters of tea because it (laughs) took him a good two hours to come back. But when he came back, it was with Bob, his son, and with uh, Rupert Manwaring. Rupert Manwaring, yep, yep. Yeah, the team manager. And the three of them came, and it was actually Rupert who told he once more explained the financial situation of terror and whatever. And he said, but this is the situation. This is why we need to negotiate with a, with a driver who is capable of bringing sponsorship, blah, 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 blah. But the truth of the matter is that uh, we have enough money in the bank to do some crazy things if we want to. And we can afford to make an investment on a young guy like you if we want. And we have decided that right now we need 8 million pounds and we are halfway in the negotiation with the sponsor who should guarantee the money for this driver we're negotiating with, which was basically Marlboro for Andrea De Cesaris. And at the moment we are halfway. They offer 4 million pounds. And we have decided that if we have to invest 4 million pounds to run a guy who we know is good, but it's not the one we really want to build the future of our company, we may as well invest 8 million pounds and get a guy who's young, who's hungry, and uh, who can get the job done for us like we believe you can. So the truth of the matter is just go up into the workshop 
and make a seat fit because tonight we're going to enter you in uh, the World Championship with the number four car. But please understand that if in these 12 days something happened and they come with a full sponsorship, then of course uh, that will put us in a situation where that is the road we should really follow and take. So I did the seat fitting and uh, they entered me into the championship. In fact, when I end up watching the first Grand Prix in television, because five days later, Marlboro put the entire amount of money on the table and I lost my, in less than one week, I lost two rides in Formula One. You know, when, when the grid goes through the, the screen and evidently the technology was not as good as it is today where it takes them a blink of an eye to change something. It was something that was already been prepared like probably days before and my name went up in the green of the scissors. So that was like a knife punching my chest some more times. I mean, Alex, that says so much about you it sells actually says a lot about Tyrrell as well doesn't it yeah i mean uh, for me it was uh, i mean that meeting that day it's something that i will forever treasure in my heart because uh, ken Tyrrell was uh, probably a man who was uh, strong enough experienced enough and full of uh, amazing qualities enough to not be changed by what changed many other people in formula 1 there's nothing bad with the people who today are, I don't want to say assholes, but I say assholes. Uh, (laughs) uh, But yeah, along the way, even if the situation is such to promote the worst to come out of you, you can still control that and stop the worst to come out of you and deal business in a way that is uh, good, reasonable, possibly profitable for the company you're representing without being an asshole. And that was really Cantillo. So what happened in 92 was that you ended up doing a handful of races for Minardi. And I guess just an incredibly frustrating season for you. These are the situation where a manager, a good one, or maybe a good advisor, I better say, would have really made a difference in turning those possibilities into good opportunities because there was opportunities also in the ride that Giancarlo Minardi offered me, but I was completely unprepared. I had done nothing after that disappointment. I did nothing even as far as keeping myself fit, you know, for an opportunity may one come. So when Giancarlo called me, of course, when he said, do you want to drive my car? Because Christian Fittipaldi was injured. I said, Giancarlo is to like to ask a cat whether he likes the mouse. Of course I will. But I mean, I should have really been honest with myself and approached that situation in a better way. I didn't. So I didn't get the best out of that. The good thing is that the car was certainly not super competitive. So that didn't made anything good for my, let's say, reputation, but didn't ruin my reputation either. Like Alex says, 1992 was a season to forget for Minardi. Problems with the gearbox and the Lamborghini engine plagued their car, and the team scored just one point all season. Alex only qualified for one of the three races he did for Minardi, and even then, he retired on the first lap. <laughs> 
But top teams still thought he had potential. And while Flavio Briatore hadn't forgotten about their falling out, he still wanted to have Zanardi at Benetton for 1993. Briatore calls me middle of the summer of 92 with a very ironic tone on his voice. He says, hey, boy, I told you you had to listen to me. I told you you had to follow my directions. And uh, he said, anyway, no bad feelings. If you want, uh, whenever you have time, you fly over to United Kingdom, you come and see me and uh, we have lunch and we talk a little. So following week, I went to see him and he offered me a deal, testing deal with the team. A proper deal this time. Proper deal, as a test driver. And, uh, and I was very, very happy and I accepted that. The thing is that Briatore was certainly running the team but Briatore was one thing. The technical side of the team was a completely different one with uh, Ross Brown, Pat Simmons. They were on their own, like technically, you know. They, I never got to meet them. I never got to meet anybody at Benetton. I was given the shirt, just a shirt, short sleeve shirt, and that was it. And uh, so on paper, I was the test driver, but in reality, I wasn't. And then here it comes, the end of the year, uh, they have the new car ready the 194 with the active suspension ready to be taken to Silverstone for the first testing. Michael was ill. Uh, so all of a sudden, they need a driver. They say, oh, we have a test driver. So they pick up the phone and they call me up to go to a place uh, called Kimball, which is like an airstrip near to Oxford. Oh, that's um, Formula One teams do a bit of testing. Yes, it's an old airfield. Exactly. To go up and down to do some aerial measurements. And then uh, two days later, we would have gone to Silverstone for a three days test. Again, I go there with my little bag full of dreams. I didn't knew anybody. So uh, I show up. Hello, I'm Alex Zanardi. Oh, yeah. Okay, Alex. So they got all very friendly. And of course, that changed my morale as well very rapidly we do this testing kimball which of course i didn't have anything other than to do than than go up and down there was nothing that i could do good nothing that i could do wrong and then we go to silverstone and although it was the very first time of the car with active suspension they were not expecting to do much work the program went marvelously well because uh, the car was already performing much better than they thought so by the end of day three, I'd done an enormous amount of laps and I had run faster than the pole position of uh, the GP they had a few months before. The car was really flying. It was not me. I mean, I was just steering the wheel, of course, but the, the potential was there. The car would then prove to be, you know, much better than it was uh, the previous year. But in fact, when you do that, uh, when you are the one driving and they stop the stopwatch and they look at it and they say, wow, boy. So they were all very excited and for sure they thought the car was good, but they evidently thought that also the one driving the car was very good. So all of a sudden now, from being a guy who was nominated test driver but that never had anything to do with the team, they all loved me. I was the kid of the company, you know. They, they said, okay, you're going you're gonna to come. So they had me come to England twice more just to stay around with the team, to familiarize with the engineers. Ross Brown, I had a very good relationship both with Ross Brown and Pat Simmons because I've always been a very curious guy from a technical point of view. So I was never tired of talking to the engineers about potential setup solution, things like this. 
So true enough, two weeks later, they have a test in Paul Ricard. It was like a general test where all the teams would go. I don't remember if it was two weeks after. It was some time after because uh, the season had, had finished and, uh, and all the teams were there testing. And it was the very first time that Ricardo Patrese was allowed from Williams to drive the Benetton, which was his new team. Cut a long story short, everybody's running that day and uh, I'm just watching. I'm present there in case I'm needed. And uh, they were there with two cars. One was driven from Michael and the other one was driven from uh, Patrese. By two o'clock in the afternoon, when the session restarted after lunch, they gave Ricardo a fresh set of tire because they wanted really to encourage him. He was like two seconds off Michael's best time. He probably knocked like a few tenths out of his best time, but nothing impressive. I mean, he was still a good second and a half slower than Michael. And at that point, he stepped out of the car. So he goes to the hospitality and I was there. And I was there also when he started to talk to Pat Simmons, who was engineering him that day. And Pat Simmons had the attitude of someone that is trying to, to help. You know, he was trying to encourage Ricardo. And he said, you know, Ricardo, I mean, it's a difficult car. Uh, we understand. Uh, probably there is something the boys are now checking. But uh, tell me what you want to do. You want to use some more fresh set of tires in order, you know, for you with low fuel to try to bring the performance out of it and have a feel of it? Or you would rather, how about if we do a race simulation so you can go with a full load of fuel? And he was so angry. Ricardo is a great guy. But that moment I could understand that, of course, his mood inside was really bad. So he just turned around and he just said, I mean, these words came out of his mouth, which were very wrong. He said, you know what? I'm coming from Williams, I'm vice champion, vice world champion, and uh, I'm, I'm here to teach, not to learn. So if you want to do the race simulation, you have the test driver, have him do the simulation. So Pat Simmons, he said, okay, thank you very much. He just turned around, looked at me, and he said, Alex, do you want to do the race simulation? I'm ready. I'd already changed, right? So, true enough, now I'm in the car, Pat comes uh, close to me and he says, okay, Alex, we're going to send you out with uh, only 20 kilos of uh, fuel, with the same tires uh, Ricardo had just used. They're good, they only have five laps on it. You go out, do several laps until you feel comfortable, and then you bring it back in. We fill the car, we check everything, and you go for the race. This I went out with the same tires. I went one and a half tenths faster than Michael's best time and uh, finished that day fastest of the day. Uh, I was fastest of all, uh, of all the cars running. And <laughs> boy, I was happy. Boy, I was proud. And uh, true enough, uh, then I did the race simulation where uh, Michael was, uh, because we were good friends, and Michael was, uh, I remember also on the out lap, when I had to go out and simulate the warm-up lap, stop on the grip, count like to 10, Michael was um, calling the strategy over the radio to me. He was giving me the instructions. So we had this type of relationship, right? That's amazing. And uh, that night, uh, I did my race simulation. Everything went smooth and well. And when I stepped out of the car, Briatore had just arrived and had just been told, not so much of Ricardo's defeat, but 
about what they had done, you know, because everybody were so happy, you know, so proud of what they had done. And so Briatore approached me and he kind of had me and he said, I told you, you have to be my boy. You have to follow me. From now on, you only do what I tell you to do. And uh, by the way, tonight you're going with us. And I said, where are we going? Ah, we have a big party back in Treviso. Benetton is having a big party. So we're flying our private jet uh, to Treviso and then we come back in the night. So on the trip, uh, he offered me this deal where for the following year, he said, now I'm straight and honest with you. Next year, there's nothing here for you. Michael and Patrese are our drivers, but uh, you've seen the outcome today. We don't know. I mean, we've hired Ricardo to make this work and we're going to try our best to make it work. But it's also possible that it would not. So you have to be patient. You have to stay with us as a test driver and time will tell. There may be an opportunity for you in the future, but the deal is on the table for you if you want to sign it. And on top, if you want to drive in Formula 3000 in Japan to make some money, keep yourself fit, we're going to help you to do this. And, uh, you know, we're not going to say you can't go to race because you have to test for us. We're going to work around your commitment. But then the following day, what I've done the previous one was seen also from other. And the following day, I was about to go to the restaurant. And uh, I got approached from this gentleman with the Lotus shirt and introduced himself. His name was Peter Collins. I didn't know who he was. <laughs> uh, I mean, I thought he was a mechanic, for God's sake. And uh, he said, boy, you did a hell of a job yesterday. Impressive what you're doing. Very, very impressive and blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, thank you, thank you. That's why I thought he was a mechanic, you know. And uh, true enough, uh, he said, uh, can we have a chat with you tonight in our motorhome? And I said, yes, you can. So when I went to meet him in Motorhome, I understood what he meant when he said we. Uh, it was him and Peter Wright. And they basically offered me the ride for the following year because uh, it was not official yet, but uh, Mika Hakinen had been hired from McLaren for the following year. So by losing Mika Hakinen, they were looking for a replacement. For 93, this is. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. You knew that you were doing a better job than Riccardo Petrezzi in that Benetton. You knew that you had the team around you. Briatore was, I think, by the sounds of it, being straight with you. So there was every opportunity, wasn't there, that Riccardo was going to be out at the end of 93. Why didn't you stay with Benetton as their test driver and then you would have been in that 94 car instead of Jos Verstappen? Why? <laughs> I mean, there are so many why connected to many things we do in life that after time, you know, we're all professor. <laughs> when we know the outcome of our choices, I mean, in reality, I should add, probably. But only God knows what my life would have been today if I'd chosen differently at the time and not necessarily better. This is the life I choose to live. And, uh, you know, you have to try to take everything it comes as an opportunity. But sometimes it doesn't always present itself as such. You have to serve whatever life decides to do for you in presenting you a possibility 
in order to turn that into an opportunity. I thought that was a better possibility to drive for Lotus because I would drive. And uh, if you remember, in 92, Lotus had a fantastic season. The car was not very reliable, but I mean, very, very often with the Cosmo engine, they were able to fight for podium finishes. So, quite frankly, it was a very good opportunity. As a matter of fact, I ended up when the thing got a little developed to the point where I could really sign. I remember having a conversation about this topic with Michael. He says, Alex, I think you should sign. This is a better opportunity for you than stay here as a test driver. How interesting. Can I guess what Briatore said to you when you told him that you didn't want to be his test driver and that you were signing for Lotus? He was not very impressed. He was not very impressed. But uh, yeah, I came to terms with that. But still, many years after, or every time I bump into it, he always says, you should have listened to me that day. eh?" (laughs) Even now? Yeah, 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 yeah. He strongly believes I was sufficiently equipped to shine in Formula One at a very, very high level. And I only been guided in a better way from the right person. He thought he was the right person to guide me. And to a certain degree, I believe, had I had developed, because this also is left to be found, but had I had developed a relationship with him of total trust, where I would listen, I would use his experience, his wiseness, his knowledge to, let's say, avoid. Because in life, it's like, it's like a relationship between a son and a parent. You cannot choose the direction of the journey your son is going to take. That decision belongs to him. But you can try to support him, to stop him to go off the road, you know, uh, <laughs> in the grass. <laughs> and, and try to steer him a little bit in order to avoid some major mistakes he could do if it was left completely on his own. And this, I think, is, is what was missing in, in that part of my racing career. I was missing someone who could stop me to do some major mistakes. Was that one, driving for Lotus and not staying with Benetton, one of my major mistakes? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I think if I want to be honest with myself, I have to answer, I should have used the opportunity that I was given to drive for Lotus in a better way. Because there were things that I could do in a better way with that car that I didn't. It was a good car, wasn't it? And and you, what was it, sixth in Brazil, and it was it was quick, and you and Johnny Herbert seemed to make a good team. Yeah, but I mean, starting from the first race, I was fighting with Damon and Williams, and that should you know tell you the story. But I wasn't simply happy to be fifth at that moment. I wanted to go and and win the race with the Lotus, and it was not possible. But that was my mental set, right? In Imola, I came from the back of the field, went through the entire field, got up to fourth, and then uh, JJ later, I don't think consciously, but he short break me, approaching the Variante Bassa, and I just stuffed the car in the wall, and, and that was it. But I was in a rush to pass him because I was lapping a second and a half faster than Martin Brando in the Ligier, who was running third. So in my mind, I could only see the podium as a satisfying finishing for that day, where had I finished just fourth, just fourth, for Lotus, it would have been a fantastic result, and for me as well. 
that was that was me at that moment. So, Alex, if there was one thing you were lacking, it was patience. Is that fair? Yeah, still today. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you about the Belgian Grand Prix '93? Because that pretty firmly put the brakes on things, didn't it? This morning, Alessandro Zanardi had a huge chance in the Eau Rouge corner going up to the hill towards Radion. John, before we start talking about this morning, this was a massive shunt. It was the biggest shunt I've seen all year. Zanardi, I can't imagine what speed he hit the barrier virtually head on. You saw a flash fire, the car spinning about 10 times across the track, coming to rest at the exit of the Radion corner. Now, Zanardi was in the car and he was momentarily unconscious, but you see Professor Watkins, the Formula One doctor in attendance, a surgical collar around his neck. And I have to say, Zanardi, this is the biggest accident I remember in his career. The car, not a wheel left on it. I mean, what do you remember of that crash? Not much. I remember the, the unprofessionality of the Belgian doctors who certified I was fine for them to drive again. And I mean, I couldn't stand. I was in tremendous uh, dizziness, not pain, dizziness. Daniela drove me back home. I could not fly. I could not stand. I, I, mean, I mean, I could only stay flat, uh, lie with my eyes closed because I had a brain edema. Uh, my brain swallowed. That happened because of the deceleration. And then all my small veins in my eye exploded. So my eyes were only red. I looked very much like uh, Dracula uh, for the following month or so. And then you set out the rest of the season. And then the Lotus the following year is, isn't as good. And the team is in spiraling towards its death anyway. The following year, I think I, I, think I was finally ready. I paid my duty. And as far as experience, and I was finally ready to get the jump done properly. And uh, I, I stayed with the team as a test driver because that's the only thing I had uh, available for me to do. They kept me as a test driver. And then I reapproached a new opportunity with the right attitude. And man, I mean, uh, that until a uh, few days before uh, the race of Barcelona, where uh, we were involved into a test, a three days test in, in Silverstone. All the teams were there. And I was supposed to drive only the first day. And then I would let the wheel to Pedro Lamy, who was the official driver next to Johnny Herbert. But then at the end of the first day, the team was so happy. And in particular, Peter Wright. We were big buddies at that point. He was very, he developed that passion for me, for being the right guy for them. Technically speaking, you know, the relationship we had, I mean, I could spend nights of, in, in talking to him and say, Peter, we have to do this, we have to do that. I was actually meaning the work of the suspensions. And uh, I brought Lotus, he said, uh, I, I was able to bring Lotus to a different level, technically speaking. My knowledge was too precious to be wasted. And so to cut a long story short, that went more and more and more to the point where we arrived in Silverstone for the test. I did the first day of testing. And then he went to Pedro Lamy and he announced that the following day I would still drive the car. He said, Pedro, we're testing something with Alex that we need to evaluate tomorrow morning. So he'll do like 20 laps in the morning and then you'll be in the car. And then the morning becomes lunch break. 
And then he goes and he says, no, we do another 20 laps with Alex in the afternoon and then you'll drive the car. And then that came the evening. And then he said, we're going to do another 20 laps on the third day and then you drive the car. And that became lunch break. And then he said, okay, we're going to do another 20 laps uh, in the afternoon and then you drive the car. And at that point, Pedro, of course, he was very angry, very furious. And Domingo Piedade was his uncle as well as his manager called Peter Collins, Peter Collins called Peter Wright, and there was this big argument where finally they said, okay, Alex is going to do four times lap in the afternoon, then you drive the car. So I go out, I do four times lap, I stop, I explain uh, over the radio to Peter, the, the car, my comment, and then he just covers the microphone, he looks at me with this side and he says, we have to let Pedro drive. I'm sorry, Alex. <laughs> so I get out of the car. At that point, I had done 397 laps. Wow. Okay? With that car. No, sorry. 297. Almost 300 laps. 297 laps in almost three days of testing. Same car. They do adjust the seat belts, put Pedro's seat in it. He goes out. He does one lap. On his first lap, rear wind broke. And the car flies up in the air and he went straight into the pedestrian tunnel next to the bridge corner, you know, through the bridge. Yeah, I remember. Tremendous accident, tremendous accident. I just remember Johnny's boy completely terrified, screaming, Pedro, the crash, Pedro, the crash, come, come, please, come, come, he's hurt, he's hurt. And uh, we all went there. And uh, when I arrived there under the bridge, the only thing I could see was the Mugen engine of the car. It was like in display, smoking a little bit. But the only the engine with no gearbox, nothing. The, the engine sitting on the ground like he had been uh, displaced there, you know. And Pedro was inside the pedestrian tunnel, as I said, which was remaining of the car. Um, smoke coming out of it, flames and so on. I mean, it was... Terrible, screaming because of the pain. He slept very badly, and that's how I got my ride back to a certain degree, you know, replacing Pedro, who was injured. Just out of interest, that accident with Pedro had obviously come quite soon after Imola, where we'd lost Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna. What was your attitude to danger in those days? I was not thinking about it. That's the answer. I mean, today I have. more maturity, and I tend to consider some aspects which are not directly related to the outcome of the result I can produce, but you have to consider that something can happen in the circumstances. In those days, I was not thinking about it. The only thing on on which I was interested was how fast I could go, how good the car was, and when it was time to perform or when it was time to call it. You didn't think, gosh, I could have easily still been in that Lotus and that could have been me that had the rear wing failure and, and, and? I mean, yeah, the, the rear wing mount lasted on 297 lap on 298 broke. And that was when Pedro was in the car. So if you want, you, could, you, you can also say you should have seen this as a sign from destiny, but... It really depends on the character you have because the sign could really be seen as the good Lord loves me. He wants me to continue. So he decides to, you know, to make that mount last uh, until I was in the car 
And so he's going to protect me from now on. I mean, the reality is that you have to accept the simple fact that we are alive means that we have something to lose. You have to accept that idea. And of course, you don't want to do anything insane. You don't want to run against the danger. You have to try to avoid it. But look what happened to me. You know, a lot of people stops me. Even now, when I, when I do things, when I drive a race car, they say, are you not scared after what happened to you? I said, why should I be more scared now that something happened to me? I'm not any more vulnerable than I was before. I mean, actually, from a statistic point of view, if it's really meant to happen, it should happen to somebody else. Even if it would, I can't lose my legs again. If I break one of them, it only takes a four millimeter screw to fix it. Whether if it happened to another driver, you know, it would be a little bit more complicated. So, no, it's a fatality. And that period of beginning of 94, yeah, I too think it goes beyond. You cannot classify that period as a pure series of fatality. It was probably a sign from somewhere. It was a sign because uh, the accident that Pedro had, uh, the accident Carverlinger had in Monaco, Andrea Montermini in Barcelona, and Rubens Barrichello, not to say, of course, Roland Ratzenberg and Ayrton Senna, but that condensation of amazing, incredible fatalities was too much to be just classified as a coincidence. So you get in the car from Barcelona onwards in 94, but then you failed to score a point and I don't think you qualified higher than 13th. It just wasn't an easy year. And then Lotus folds. Did you think at that point that was it in Formula One? Yeah. There were no other opportunities. Nothing. Nothing. I remember the last race of uh, of the year, Adelaide. I drove a very good race. And at one point, uh, I had an engine. No, actually, it was even more stupid than that. It was the throttle cable that broke. I had to retire for the throttle cable. And Joe Clear, who was uh, my engineer that time, uh, 10 minutes after, comes to me, Alex, you were lucky. And I said, yes, I think I was because we were running very well. I was up to seventh and I was running well. I mean, I think I could score some points that day. And he said, come with me. And he showed me the rear wind mount completely cracked almost until the end of it. I said, had you been out for another lap, maybe uh, we would have told a different story about this weekend. It could have been a very tragic one for us. So be happy with this retirement, with this DNF. <laughs> oh, what a story. Had they had the possibility to replace the rear win and send me out again, I wouldn't have any problem to just step into the car again and, and drive it with the same tenacity as I had done up to that point. So look, you then go to IndyCar. In your three full seasons there, you're utterly dominant. You're twice the champion. You finished third in your first full year. Why did IndyCar seem to suit you better than Formula One? Or is that not an accurate statement? It's not an accurate statement. I think also already in 94, I served uh, Lotus in a much better way than I had done the previous year. Unfortunately, that didn't show because uh, the car was simply not as good uh, as the previous year. Not any good, as a matter of fact. Monza was the only race where we could have done something, but unfortunately, at the very last minute, the second gearbox which was needed to mount the new Mugen V10 engine, much smaller, lighter, you name it, 
uh, didn't get ready. So I could not use that uh, same spec that Johnny had. Johnny qualified fifth, but then when we overlaid the laps, uh, they realized that in the two Lesmos, I gained almost six tenths of a second on his time. I'm not going to go through the technical explanations, but it was seen uh, from uh, Peter Wright and all the technicians that had I had the same car, I could have fought for the pole position in that weekend. But this is just theoretical. Eh? Fascinating. So even when you're dominating IndyCar, and it looks like you're having the time of your life, how strong was the desire to return to Formula One, even when you're doing all that winning? Not that strong. I was very happy doing what I was doing. In fact, when the opportunity arised, then I start to give it some thought about it. Until uh, I was left alone, I was very, very happy as I, where I was. And uh, had I been honest with myself, I think staying in IndyCars would have suit my needs much, much better. Not because it was a better choice, but because at that point, I was regaining interest for other things in life on which I lost sight for many years due to the fact that it was completely dedicated to achieve my dream, turn this passion of mine into a profession. And that hadn't happened yet. And when I, when I signed a deal with Ganesi, I was still a guy who had to calculate very well his finance in order, should I buy ticket this day? No, I go an, a day before, so I save $50. I had nothing other than an old uh, BMW with 300,000 kilometers on it <laughs> and nothing else. I mean, um, I had nothing. So that had happened at that point. I should have been more in understanding that I still had the same capability of steering the wheel with the same efficiency, but the energies inside me were not as unlimited as they were at the beginning of that small era of my life. So when did Williams make the first contact with you? Uh, that happened uh, April. Of which year? 98. 98. Mm -hmm. And is it true that there was an opportunity with British American Racing as well? Or yeah. have I got that wrong? Even more than that. I had an opportunity with them, with Jordan. And uh, one day I was driving and my wife answered the phone. I was driving back uh, from the grocery store back home in Indianapolis. And she answered the phone and she was like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, he's here, he's here. And he goes like, he's Alain Prost. Because she's also a big motorsports fan, you know. And for us, Alain Prost was like God, right? And for her to take the call from Alain Prost, who was looking for me, you know, to drive for him the following year, was something very special. But of course, after the great pride of receiving a phone call from Alain Prost, uh, you could certainly not compare the possibilities, Jordan, even British American racing, I mean, it was a new team. It was left to be seen what they would have done the following year. The strongest point on that opportunity was the fact that I could still work with Renard, Renard Racing. They were about to design the car for them. And I had a lot of trust in Malcolm Osler, who was the chief designer, and in the ability of, you know, producing a very good Formula One car. Fact proved that I was wrong because... Uh, takes more than the skills and instinct of a single designer to be successful in Formula One. It takes much, much more than that. I think there were a lot of politics in the early years as well, weren't there? But I also had a lunch with Jean Todd uh, 
not regarding serious possibility, but he was quite serious because he asked me to go to Maranello and have lunch with him in one of my trips to Italy uh, in that period. And I remember it was kept uh, very reserved, but he said, you know, Alex, I want to tell you, even before we start to talk, Michael Schumacher for us is the center point. Everything goes around him. So this is clear. We have no doubt on Michael. Michael is, is a gift for our team, but Michael is a human being. Michael now has been very successful. He has a beautiful wife. He has kids. He has a great house. He has horses. He has dogs barking on his garden. So maybe down the road, he could lose his anger. And uh, we have to be ready as a company. We cannot afford to run only one competitive car. We have to search for the best possible solution for the second car. But right now, it would only be our second car. But uh, if our second car is as good as the first, we know that when we lose that, we have a very, very good backup. And so he made me understood that they were very, very keen in investigating an opportunity to have me driving alongside Michael. Life had changed a lot for me. Come on, come on, come on. Are you telling me as an Italian, you weren't tempted by that opportunity, even to be Schumacher's number two? I was not longer Italian from this point of view. I mean, I was Italian, very much Italian when I was a kid. But uh, then I got to realize that I was a very lucky guy because although I found my red car not in the place where I thought I would, I did find my red car in America. I did find an opportunity which changed my life forever for the better. And I was aware of that and I was winning. I proved to me that I was good enough to win at every level. That was the final step in having the final confirmation. And uh, so I was very much sure, too sure, that I could also win in Formula One had I only been given the right opportunity. And uh, that's the approach with which I enter into some, or I allow myself to consider some of the offers that I received those days to go back to Formula One. But I, I, I should have really asked myself in a better way how I ended up winning in the United States. And was I ready to go through that procedure from the very beginning once more? Because to get the circle rolling, it takes a very important effort at the beginning. Then once the circle is rolling, you can keep it rolling very easily. And with Ganesi, the circle was rolling so rapidly that it would have took nothing for me to keep it spinning. That is the biggest mistake I did. There's a very interesting quote that I've read from Patrick Head, where he has suggested that you weren't dedicated enough to succeed at Williams. He's right, but you cannot force yourself to be dedicated. This means that you are following your ambition. Now I know, at the time I didn't. Especially when you can, you have to try to follow your passion. You can develop a passion for the things that you have to do. So I believe I could have developed a better passion for my mission with Williams. This is where I fell in not uh, treating this as something that had to become more passionate than it was. There was a time where I should have really, when things were not working as well as I was hoping from the very beginning, it was then the time to, to act. It was then the time to go to England, rent a house next to the shop, or even plant my tent on the garden, 
spend time with the team, gel with them, develop something, integrate myself into the team. And then, I mean, to steer the wheel, it's the last uh, step of the game. It's actually the easiest, you know, when things are right and the car is fast, <laughs> to steer the wheel is, is really the last step. I mean, I was treating that uh, task uh, in only steering the wheel. Maybe in some days I also steered the wheel in the right way, but the bottom line, I was steering the wheel of a car that wasn't right, wasn't right for me. If Formula One hadn't just switched to groove tyres, do you think that would have helped you if it had still been slicks? Was that the hardest thing to get your head around? There are many ifs which could help. Yes, for sure. As I said, you know, when you're leading the pack and you see all your opponents in the mirrors, it's very easy to become intelligent at that point. So had the car been different, had the car been more competitive, had the car been more reliable, had I had been given from the word go an engineer, very experienced, a guy strong, also from a personal point of view, strong enough to say, Alex, believe me, these tires are bloody shit. These tires will only last one lap. We're not going to be able to learn anything with two set of tires in one day of testing because Bridgestone is always giving us this year because uh, you know they're, they're going to keep uh, the supply of the tires to this level. So it's not the year where we can waste time in testing different setups, different things, uh, put the car upside down, just drive the car the way the simulator tells us we have to drive the car because these cars are very aerodynamically driven. So we have to extract the maximum downforce we can from what we have. And the only way we will achieve this is by running the car this way mechanically with this setup, with this rake and blah, 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 blah. Just go out and learn the car. It's not your ear where this is not longer like you and Morris Nunn spending entire nights in thinking how to change the car with the click of shock absorber, with the amount of uh, changing the springs, with the anti-roll bus, with the more Ackerman, less Ackerman, you know, caster, camber, things like this, tire pressure. Forget about this all. Just drive the car and try to familiarize with it because this is the best car you're going to get. And instead, I was actually hired from Williams as someone who could take the team, technically speaking, into some new roads. And I was actually given an engineer, very inexperienced, because in Patrick's head mind, he said, if they lose their way, you know, we can always bring them back and copy the setup of the other car. And, and, and when I figure, I did figure myself that that was not the right approach. And that was even before the beginning of the championship. But I didn't dare talking to Patrick and say, Patrick, things are not working this way. We have to make an adjustment because otherwise we're just going to lose a lot of time and we're going to lose confidence on each other. And I allow myself to, to go over it. And uh, when I finally said, okay, now it's time to grab him and, and tell him that was Imola after four races. And I went to, to talk to him with these arguments and his answer was, hmm, I don't know. And I, I, I figured at that point that the confidence in me had completely vanished. By the fourth race? 
yeah, I think, I think at that point, I mean, again, you cannot force a man to believe that you are the right one. If he believes they've done a mistake in hiring you, yeah, there are things you can do. And I tried, but I was very much lonely at that point, from that point onwards. And I'm not blaming anyone from uh, allowing me to fall on that situation. I am the main reason of my defeat. It's as simple as this, and I'm telling you. But uh, why didn't I fight earlier? Why didn't I fight until I was Alex Zanardi, the guy who won twice the championship, who made these amazing comebacks, who fooled everybody in USA, also on ovals? It's because I was empty. I was empty inside. I had just become a father. I wanted to spend a little bit more time at home. And um, it was a more comfortable solution for me to say, yeah, maybe they're right. Okay, let them try their way and then, then I'll try mine. Instead of saying, no, Daniela, I'm sorry, I'm going to England and I don't know when I'm coming back, but I got to get this strike. So in this respect, Patrick is absolutely right. How quick was Ralph Schumacher? Quick enough, evidently, and also more lucky than I was because... 16 times I had a differential failure, electronic failure, and that always happened either in qualifying or in race. And the car could still run without a diff, but if they have a diff, it's for a reason. I mean, when you lose the diff, you also lose performance. And every time I was asked to carry on, to try to do something, but of course, uh, even a guy like Patrick Eddy, at one point, he, he genuinely said the uh, I don't like to talk about this. I can't believe these words are coming out of my mouth, but I have to say you are really unlucky. I cannot believe this. (laughs) Did he try and explain why your car was so less reliable? No, listen, I can't can't really blame them. He actually, at one point, uh, he actually came one day, we had a test in Barcelona and engineered the car himself to try to understand whether he could help me, you know? to regain control of the situation, to mend a little bit the situation. We weren't prepared to speak the same language. It's as simple as this. So we didn't manage to communicate, and the outcome is the one history tells. But we're human beings. We can learn from our mistakes and, uh, you know, approach a new adventure in a better way and and up with successes, which uh, would have never been achieved if we didn't have these unsuccessful experiences. And I'm very, very great uh, to life in general, to destiny, for the opportunities I've been given, for the career I've been able to achieve. And I believe that uh, the bad days are really important to make you feel and taste and evaluate in a proper way the good ones when they finally arrive. Otherwise, you know, it would be just average, normal, boring. Uh, in fact, it's exactly the opposite. It's so hard to win a race. And when you finally do so, wow, you're happy. How much of a bitter taste does 99 leave in your memory when you think of your Formula One career now? I mean, there were those great days, whether it was the test at Paul Ricard in the Benetton and the sixth place in the Lotus in 93. Has it sort of tainted your attitude towards Formula One? Well, if there is one thing which uh, makes me feel a little bad about this is uh, the fact that I would have loved to grant uh, Frank Williams personally 
a success. I would love to, you know, to make that man happy. This is the greatest disappointment. Everything else uh, is life. I'm a very lucky man and a very happy person. Of course, I had uh, difficult moments through the course of my life, but I tell you, this was not the biggest. Absolutely. <laughs> Were you tempted to retire from racing completely at the end of '99? Um, yes. At that moment, uh, yes, because I was completely finished inside. I was. I just wanted to run away from my my disaster. I felt uh, I was out of place at that point. I mean, uh, to walk around Suzuka paddock in uh, at the end of that season, I felt very much uh, uncomfortable, let's say. I knew I was seen like, uh, I mean, I can remember also, there were no socials at the time, right? But uh, the very first race in Australia, after free practice, I ended up fifth. So the beginning looked, uh, very, very promising, and all the quotes, all the rumors bouncing back from the US were like, Yeah, our guy is really showing them, right? I mean, if I consider this all, it's more from these aspects that I really feel sorry. I, it, it's really a disappointment for me to having not achieved something also in name of other people, having disappointed people. I am so absolutely sure it was technically possible for me to achieve because if I could go back in time, for sure, I could write a completely different story. But as I said, we human beings, we have to accept ourselves for our strength and for our weakness and try to, along the course of life, you know, we repeat experiences that are different. But in reality, the method that we develop is like going around always and bouncing back always on the same places. It's always the same circle. So you learn, you learn and you learn and you do things in a better way. I believe uh, the experience with Williams, as funny as this may sound, granted me also some better strength to win the Olympic Games, both in London and Rio de Janeiro and in the things that I'm doing these days. But sometimes you have to fall on the all to really understand how deep it is, you know? And uh, yeah, it's as simple as that, I guess. Time and again in his life, Alex has had to find the strength to overcome injuries, setback and adversity. And as he hinted out there, he's now a four-time Paralympic gold medalist in hand cycling. He's become a winner again against all the odds. After a terrible crash resulted in his legs being amputated above the knee, Alex was leading the American Memorial Champ Car Race at the Lausitzring in Germany in September 2001 when he spun coming out of the pits and was hit by Alex Tagliani. ESPN's commentary team described what happened next. Crack picks up the lead. Oh, Anzanotti. Oh, with a terrible crash. Yellow is out. all over that racetrack. There's so much carbon fiber on that track. What we saw is he got T-bone just unbelievably in the uh, the front of the tub. 
Dr. Steve Manobli has just come out of the medical center. Doctor, can you give us information relating to both drivers? Yeah, Gary, Alex Zanardi is extremely critical. He's had severe injuries to both of his lower extremities, has had significant blood loss, but he is responding. He is breathing on his own. Uh, so we're sending him to the Berlin uh, Major Trauma Center. I mean, uh, my heart stopped seven times. It was calculated that I managed to survive uh, more than 50 minutes with less than a liter of blood, which scientifically it's impossible or is considered to be impossible. And uh, so scientists who study my case, still to this day, they say, well, there's either something that uh, was missing in the equation or this guy is dead and he doesn't know. But luckily I'm here. Luckily I was helped from a group of doctors, of people, who were the best in the planet, Captain from uh, Steve Olvey and Terry Trammell, who literally saved my life in preparing me to the best, uh, to that helicopter trip, which took me to Berlin Hospital. And this also is another choice that was crucial in saving my life. The fact that Steve Olvey took that amazing risk because the hospital was only a 25 minutes helicopter trip. Berlin was much further away, but he, he said, uh, if we send him to Dresden, we're going to lose him. They're not equipped to, to pair up with this situation. If uh, he makes a miracle and he holds, he hangs in it until uh, he gets to Berlin, then there we may have a chance. And I did. I managed. So there's a beautiful initial chapter in the book he wrote about this. And there's an amazing description of uh, his reaction when he set the uh, after the helicopter took off to try to take me to Berlin, he said, I had nothing to do at that point. So my tension dropped. And the only thing I could do at that point was to cry. And I cried waiting for that phone call because I knew that 50 or so minutes later, the phone was going to ring. And uh, from what I've learned in my life as a doctor, my experience, all the things I've been through, I knew that was going to ring, and on the other side of the phone, somebody was going to tell me, your friend didn't make it. It was as simple as that. And when the phone rang, and someone from the other side of the phone said, we are in Berlin Hospital, Alex is being taken to the intense care room, he's going to go to a surgery, he's in critical condition, but uh, relatively stable, he's alive. And he said, I put the phone down, I cried even more because even for a man of science like me, I thought a miracle just happened. <laughs> what an incredible story. Alex, were you conscious in the immediate aftermath of the impact? Uh, no, no. Although when I look at the image that were not public from the inside cameras of the circuit, there are some things that I'm doing, like trying to open my crash helmet visor unbuckle my belts, typical things that the driver does uh, after an accident. So maybe at that point I was conscious, but then due to the great loss of blood, uh, of course, I blacked out. And uh, Was the crash at Spa in 93 actually a, a bigger impact in terms of deceleration? thousand times more. Yeah, that was, uh, that was an, an accident. You know, Alex Tagliani, who hit me, who cut me in two pieces. As a matter of fact, it's quite ironical, right? Alessandro Tagliani, same name, and his family name, Tagliani in Italian, means cutting. 
<laughs> Isn't that ironical? And he cut me in two pieces. Um, right. He went through my car and uh, there was no energy, dissipation as he went through, basically. Almost nothing. So probably that's why I would imagine maybe I was still kind of alert, although I had lost my legs for some seconds, for some brief seconds, until uh, I still had enough blood to, you know, to stay awake. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier about London and Rio, the gold medals. What do you treasure more, the two IndyCar titles or those Olympic gold medals? It's the same. Unfortunately, it belongs to the past. When you do something very passionately and you reach the horizon you've been chasing for a long time, I got to tell you, it's better to reach that horizon ahead of everybody else rather than finish second, fifth or 20th, you name it. But you reach the horizon, you reach the, the line, and that's it. It's the end of the, of the game. And so I reopened my eyes in Berlin at the hospital eight days after Daniela told me what had happened. I surprised myself feeling or sensing the highest joy I've ever had in my whole life. The pain on which I was was incredible. I cannot describe it. But that was giving me also the measure of what I already left behind me. Uh, you know, I was alive. Shit, who cares about my legs? I am alive. It was the most natural thing for me to focus on what was left rather than regret what I'd lost forever. I was alive, so I was very happy. And when I crossed that line in London, ahead of everybody else, winning the gold medal, which, as I said, is better than finishing second, again, once more, I surprised myself feeling a huge sense of sadness because those three years devoted to chase that horizon were fantastic. It was like being, again, the boy playing his, with his go-kart and learning everything and going through all the steps. And it was a marvelous adventure. It was probably one of the greatest chapters of my life. And by doing that last gesture, crossing that line, I was completing that project. And at that point, it hit me as a thunder, that feel of sadness, of I don't give a shit about the gold medal. Allow me to go through it once more from the very beginning. I want to, you know, rewind everything. And I'm an optimistic so that's why there's another chapter to write. So I can't say London was better than winning Cleveland or, or winning the championship or passing Brian Erta, the corkscrew in Laguna Seca. Those are memorable moments of a fantastic life, which is really fantastic. Not so much for the single things which I was able to do, which are quite honestly quite exceptional on their own anyway. But for the quantity of different things I've been able to fit in a single existence, this is the real treasure, which makes my life absolutely unique, including the accident and all the things that I was able then to do, thanks to what happened to me. Do you relish being the role model that you now are and the inspiration to so many people that you now are? I, I, I know for sure the romantic uh, side of people watching me is what turns me in their views as an exceptional role model, as the spark that can really light the fire they have inside. And uh, I am just 
the same person, you know, a normal guy. And uh, it would be diabolical for me to believe or even worse, to try to act in order to serve that role. I'm fully aware of the fact that in doing things, also because I'm a guy who is very well exposed, I tend to inspire people because they want to see much more in what I do than I really express or that I technically really deliver. Not that this thing bothers me. Actually, I'm very proud. But I have to be honest and know that in reality, if our eyes would be more talented, we would find inspiration all around ourselves. We would not need Alex Zanardi to finish an Ironman under nine hours or win a gold medal or win a race, uh, a motorsports event, even if he's lost his legs. It would be sufficient to turn our head and see a mother who she's sick, she wakes up sick, she feeds her kids with the breakfast, she takes them to school and she goes to work anyway because there's a family to feed. The example she gives may pass unnoticed, but is potentially as strong as the one I deliver whenever I win a race against, yes, some difficulties. Alex, that's a wonderful way to end it. Thank you very, very much for your time. It's been the most inspirational chat. Thank you very much. Good luck, Tom. It's been a couple of hours since I introduced this podcast, but like me, I hope you're not wanting it to finish. Such unstinting honesty from Alex. Admitting that he could have done more at Williams is an incredible admission, but nothing less than you'd expect for a man of his calibre. And the shenanigans surrounding Monza 1991 was extraordinary, wasn't it? Welcome to the big time, Alex. And there were so many other fascinating insights into F1 as well. It's hard not to feel inspired after speaking to Alex Zanardi, especially when he delves into the aftermath of his life-changing accident. After all that happened, it would be easy for him to have a different outlook on life. That he doesn't is a reflection of his character. Alex, thanks for giving so much of your time. It was wonderful to catch up and thanks too to your wife, Daniela, for putting us together. Before I leave you, I'm going to have a quick delve into the virtual mailbag to share some comments on last week's show with another Italian legend, Riccardo Petrezzi. Let's start with this from Thais. Riccardo's story about how he was supposed to do the test that tragically ended Elio De Angelis's life was incredibly impressive to listen to. What a great personality and true legend of the sport. Thanks, Thais. I agree. That made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, I can tell you. And there's this from Paul. Really enjoyed this episode. I've always loved Ricardo. He's a class act. I especially love the insight into why the 91 Williams suited his style better than the 92 car. Yes, that was good, Paul. I remember there being such a divide among the drivers about traction control at the time, and Ricardo was definitely anti it. And finally, let's hear from Matt Pearson, who said this. I discovered Beyond the Grid about a month ago and it's consumed me ever since. Amazing insights, dog walks have never been so good, thanks. Well, thanks to you, Matt, and it's gonna be a particularly long dog walk this week, lucky doggy. Well, that's it for this episode, but of course, we'll be back next week with another big name from Formula One. In the meantime, if you want to drop me a message about the show and potentially get a shout out on here, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can just use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. 
Thanks for listening. As ever, Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>